Hi there, and welcome to Maxed Out. My name is Max Fawcett. I'm the lead columnist for Canada's National Observer, and my New Year's resolutions do not include spending less time on Twitter. Maxed Out is made possible by listeners like you. We're asking for your support to keep the work going. If you've supported the podcast with a donation already, you have my personal thanks. If you haven't yet, please donate what you're able, whether it's $5 or $10 as a one-time contribution or a monthly gift. Every little bit helps us keep producing more episodes. Please donate at nationalobserver.com. This podcast is about having constructive conversations about public policy issues with people I might or do disagree with. I want to step outside of my silos and I want to encourage other people to step outside of theirs. Today, episode six, the urban-rural divide. I'll be talking with Dixon DeLorme, a farmer and social media sensation from Saskatchewan who's better known as Quick Dick McDick. Yes, really. One of the comments I've heard about this podcast so far is that I haven't been stepping far enough outside of my silo, and fair enough. Well, I think this is about as far outside of my silo as I can get. After all, I was born and raised in Vancouver. I've lived in downtown Toronto, and I've always thought of myself, proudly, I should say, as a city person. I think the idea of a, quote, Laurentian elite is a silly one, but to folks in rural Canada, I'm sure I look and sound the part. Like many Canadians, I can trace my roots back to farmers. My grandfather on my dad's side grew up on a farm outside of Riviere Key Bar near Edmonton. And while my first job as a teenager was in the agricultural barns at Vancouver's PE, that was more about punishment than curiosity. For the rest of my life, I've tried to stay as close to downtown as possible. As a result, I've become removed from the system that grows and sells me my food. And I'm hardly alone there. It's, it's a similar story to energy. We, because we've never been without a switch that delivers power or a thermostat that gives us heat, we don't think about the issues that surround its creation. There's an obvious privilege in that, but I think there's also an obvious danger. During the pandemic, when supply chains started to get wonky, grocery stores started to not have the things that we just naturally expect to be there, that danger became increasingly clear to me. Farmers aren't engaged in charitable activity, of course. They're running a business, and it's a very complicated, sophisticated, modern business. But it's a business that serves a unique purpose, and it occupies, I think, a special role in our society. And as the divide between urban and rural Canada grows wider every day, and it gets widened by politicians who, I think, try to aggravate the, the divisions between different parts of our country, I think agriculture's special role is lost in our conversation. That's why I wanted to talk to Dixon DeLorme. He's a farmer from Saskatchewan who's become famous in agricultural circles for his videos that blend political arguments about things like the carbon tax and federal policy with more lighthearted takes on farming and life on the prairies. He has some very harsh words for federal politicians like Justin Trudeau and for policies like the carbon tax. In other words, he's a perfect guest for getting me out of my silo. Welcome, Dixon. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. For those of you who, who don't know you by your alter ego, Quick Dick McDick, can you tell us how that came about, uh, how you became uh, that person? Yeah, for sure. You know, I grew up on a, on a PFRA community pasture, uh, Prayer Farm Rehabilitation uh, Act in, in Saskatchewan here. 
And uh, yeah, I went and worked uh, oil and gas in Northern Alberta for about 19 years after I graduated, came back home to the farm here about four years ago. I, I worked with a guy on a, on a 4,000 acre farm. Uh, we got 350 head of cattle and I, I accidentally created an online persona named Quick Dick McDick when I came home uh, just by accident on Snapchat one day. And I guess that's how social media works. Uh, sometimes it just kind of, you know, it, it, things explode. People start watching you all the time. So we do all kinds of things. Uh, it's like, a, I call it a variety show. It's kind of where I'll do like, uh, you know, we'll do Saskatchewan humor, small town humor. And then sometimes we'll do political commentary and satire. And uh, recently here, I've tried to up my productions a little bit uh, just to try and show, you know, how we make silage and uh, how we seed crops. I got a fun one coming up here this uh, this winter on how harvest went and everything. So just trying to show what we do here in Saskatchewan to keep uh, keep people fed and watered. Growing up in Vancouver, I'm I'm about as urban as you can get. Uh, you know, I did spend a couple of summers working in the the barns at the PNE when I was a teenager, but I think that was more punishment than anything uh, by my parents. But uh, <laughs> you know, I just think there's this, there's this disconnect between the the millions of people. You know, eighty percent of the population that lives in cities. We just assume that food and energy will show up. We don't have to do anything to make it get there and and kind of take it for granted. And then folks like you who produce that and make that energy and that food get to where we need it. And I think there's a bit of, I think, anger, I sense, uh, certainly, you know, here in Alberta and Calgary, but in Saskatchewan, at the people in the cities for kind of taking what you do for granted. Is that a reasonable assessment of the situation? You know, I'd say, Max, to a certain extent, I think there's some people, I guess, that would say like that they're angry when they hear people talking about, uh, you know, how farming is is uh, classified in, in certain genres. And myself personally, I'm, I, I guess I could honestly openly admit that I used to be one of those people that was uh, that was angry, you know, like, why why am I being picked on or why does why does someone read a post on social media that says, you know, you're torturing animals and stuff like that. And you're like, well, if you came out and spent a day on my farm with me, you would realize that that's not what we do at all, you know, but. I, I've been lucky in the last little while, given this social media platform that that's just kind of happened uh, with me. Is it's it's exposed me to a lot a lot of other people's opinions as well. I'm not a person that's angry for maybe somebody that's that lives in in urban Canada kind of thing because they don't understand or, or know what we do here. You can't be upset at somebody for just not understanding what somebody does. But if somebody just doesn't know, like you say, you know how to. How did this box of cereal get onto the shelves here in my store? Is that something you can really be upset about somebody for? I don't think it is, you know? I mean, I think there would be a lot of value in having some sort of program that, that <laughs> sent city kids to spend like a month on the farm in grade 11 or something, and then sent farm kids to live in the city for a month and kind of create a bit of a cultural exchange where, where each side understands the other a little better and maybe has a better sort of frame of reference for being being able to talk about these things where it's not just, you know, I don't know what what life is like uh, on the other side there. I, I'm interested, mm -hmm. you say you're not you're not frustrated or angry with, you know, city folks, but are you frustrated or angry with with our federal government? Uh, and, and, you know, and especially when it comes to the policies that they're uh, implementing uh, on farms and, and farmers? Yeah, I'm I'm actually quite frustrated. Uh, you know, uh, specifically uh, when you get down to some different things. Uh, one, I guess, two topics that have been pretty hot here lately have been uh, on-farm emissions and looking at uh, nitrous oxide emissions and total reductions in it. I think that that led to a fairly big movement in national media, social media, basically anything there was of there. There was quite a bit of outrage. I think specifically from you know Prairie Provinces agricultural operations and a lot of places over that, and along with. Uh, along with carbon tax policy and how it affects uh, a lot of the operations that we do out here, I'd say are, you know, two kind of the bigger ones, I think, that have me uh, very upset with with government policy and how they're implemented, I think. 
what what could the federal government do to get farms to reduce their their emissions? You know, you said that farmers are already doing this, and it makes perfect sense. You know, fertilizer is a cost. It's a cost that's gone mm-hmm. way up this year with with what's happening in Russia. And, and farms are businesses. They're these giant, um, well sort of well organized, highly technologically sophisticated businesses, and they, they don't want to spend more money on an input cost than they have to. So, what could the feds yeah. do in a non confrontational way? To, to get farms to do more of what they're already doing with respect to fertilizer use and, and kind of minimizing or managing it more effectively. If we look at a federal policy, and I think we've seen it in a lot of different policies that, that have come through, is that uh, it's very difficult to put a broad policy across a, a country as diverse as Canada is. You know, Farming practices, even within our own little rural municipality here, differ from the north end of it to the south end of it. And there's kind of a dividing line that goes between it where you'll see there's a little bit of a difference in soil type and climate from the north part of it to the south part of it. I'd like to see it come more down to a local area. But the problem with that is that can get expensive because now you have all these tiny little municipalities within Saskatchewan that have their own little ecosystems in them, you know. Typically, I think what people think in the world is that they just think the more fertilizer that you would pour at a crop, the better it's going to do and the more you're going to get out of it. That's something that really exists that people don't understand is, is a very scientific calculation that we do on how much you actually use based on your soil test. You don't just come out here and just throw as much as you can at it because there's a really good chance you're not going to get that back out of it, right? My sense uh, is a big part of this is, is that it's a trust issue, that that folks in let's call it the producing industries you know oil and gas uh and, and agriculture don't trust the federal government you know it's it is a government that is you know very clearly located in Quebec and Ontario you know it i think we have two MPs in Alberta that are liberal zero in Saskatchewan you know Ralph Goodale is is long since gone and it it i think feels to mm-hmm. me a lot like there is a sense that that whatever the government is saying it, you know, there's something else afoot. They can't really be trusted. They don't have the best interests of the prairies at heart. You know, is that is that a reasonable sort of feeling that you get from people that you talk to? I would, yeah, I would, I would say it absolutely is. Uh, I'll speak, you know, specifically for Saskatchewan. I, I believe we have 14, 14 seats, federal seats here in Saskatchewan. Like I said, not, none of which are liberal. And uh, like, I, I guess I, I get why there's kind of no real connection uh, or correlation between us and, and the federal government, because in all reality, the chances of, of them making a policy that's going to affect them being reelected in the next election here in Saskatchewan is basically zero, yeah. right? And I think we can we can look at a lot of the policies, uh, you know, even or even if we look at you know the the recent gun ban that they made amendments on Bill C twenty one with. I mean, a government, a federal government, right now can get away with doing that and and not worry about losing any votes in Saskatchewan because they they know they just they aren't going to get any there anyway. So what does it matter, you know? And I think that's I think that's where a lot of frustration comes from within our province is that you feel you just feel like you have a voice that just kind of doesn't matter, right? Yeah, and I think that's dangerous, uh, especially when provincial governments maybe uh, are able and willing to kind of weaponize that feeling of frustration where they say, you know, well, the federal government is out to get you. But uh, like, I'd say if we look at things even, uh, you know, from a from like, let's say from a carbon tax perspective, if if you look at agriculture in Canada as a whole, uh, and just a a recent study with the University of Saskatchewan here came out that we're, uh, they estimate we're at 1.65 tons of carbon we sequester here in Saskatchewan uh, for every ton of crop that we produce. And then overall throughout Canada in a 2017 study is estimated that we were a negative 33 megaton uh, carbon emitter. So we're sequestering 33 megatons of carbon, right? It, it makes you wonder, well, uh, how, how come I'm still affected so terribly by a carbon tax when we're part of the solution and not a part of the problem kind of thing? 
I think that's where a lot of frustration grows in the agriculture sector. Yeah, you know? and and I think fairly, you know, I, I I do think that the federal government has been a little bit clumsy in how they've communicated this stuff. You know, they there's a bill that's that's in front of I believe the Senate right now that was in front of the House before the last election, and then it got wiped off the order book. But but saying that they're going to exempt natural gas used for grain drying from the carbon tax, you know, I understand I understand mm-hmm. the argument, but there's there's no ready alternative in terms of technology. You can't use solar to dry grain in a, in a timely fashion. It just doesn't work that way. And it's the same thing with, yeah. you know, on-farm diesel, which is, which is exempted now from the carbon tax. It, that's, you know, that's, yeah, that's exempt there, right There now, is yeah. not really an alternative yeah. that's available for, for farmers to use. I guess where I get a little frustrated is, is it does seem to me that sometimes the, you know, the farming community, let's call it on social media, kind of amps mm-hmm. up the, you know, the, the stuff about how the carbon tax is killing them. And it's, it's affecting their, you know, it's driving them out of business. And, and, you know, is the carbon tax really killing these businesses or, or is it, is it just sort of that it's one cost on top of others and, and it kind of builds to a certain point where it becomes problematic? I, I call it like, I call it death by a thousand cuts. A fertilizer company, you know, just outside of Medicine Hat, let's say that uh, that produces urea fertilizer that we make right here in Canada is is subject to this carbon tax. And they're going to do certain things, of course, that they're going to try and reduce their emissions as much as possible. But eventually they're going to pass pass the cost of that carbon tax. They have to pay on that product down the line. Lots of times you'll see uh, fertilizer be shipped maybe from Medicine Hat into a general unloading area here in the Saskatchewan area by train, which, again, you see a, a carbon tax applied to that. Then it's got to be trucked from that loading terminal uh, where you unload it from your train to our farm. And that's all done by commercial carriers uh, that are not exempt from a carbon tax whatsoever. On, on just a super B load ballpark and it on, on around a four a 400 kilometer round trip on an average of, you know, five to five and a half miles a gallon, what you'd see on a commercial vehicle, you're seeing somewhere around the ballpark at $26 per load of what you'd see on that, right? If you add that $26 per load on the say we're going to be looking at a quarter of a million bushels of product that would come off of our farm. You can get upwards of anywhere between four to $10,000 worth of extra cost on your trucking just in a carbon tax. And that's on one farm and then put that on however many other farms. It's just on the input of fertilizer and export of your product. All of these industries are faced by the same, you know, death by a thousand cuts and everywhere they go. And in the end, there's one place that that cost is passed on to, and that's the the sucker at the end of the line that's buying their equipment and wondering how's like how's this price of equipment going so crazy on us here and uh it's uh it's frustrating especially when you see a few uh equipment manufacturers here in Saskatchewan and Manitoba that go out of their way to try and use Canadian steel in their manufacturing and they can't quite compete if they don't use a outsourced steel like from China where they can they can get it cheaper i'm very sympathetic to the idea that you know we should be supporting the use of Canadian steel, the use of Canadian uh, inputs where we can. And, and I think you're, you know, I do think mm-hmm. you're right that, that, you know, for a business that is, that is dealing with inflation, you know, everything is going up in price. They cannot afford to spend, you know, 10% more on Canadian steel than Chinese steel, because that's probably 10% they're not going to get back when they, when they sell it down the line. I'm encouraged to see that Europe uh, just passed what's called a border carbon tariff. Uh, so basically, steel and other products that are imported into Europe from places like China have to pay a tax if there's no price on carbon where they come from. So I think there is work going on to sort of equalize these things. And I do think in time, you know, Canadian steelmakers will probably be in a pretty good position. But, you know, I, I get it. You know, in, in the here and now, especially if all your costs are going up, the one that you can perhaps do something about is the carbon tax. 
can't do much about global mm-hmm. inflation, but you can ask the federal government, can you please help us here and just back off for a little bit uh, just so that we can kind of catch our breath as a business? I'm sensitive to that. You know, I, I think the challenge with the carbon tax is that it's good policy that's badly communicated, and especially in the prairies, uh, because we have nobody who's really good at communicating or, or able to communicate that to the communities that are maybe most impacted by it. I have a problem, especially uh, like I don't think the, the, the carbon tax is a good policy because it's, it's just too consumer based. And I guess my question is, uh, I've crunched the numbers out on, on what it costs me to live just as a, as a single guy here uh, in, in, in rural Saskatchewan. And what I hear most from the government is that I, I get back more than what I pay in carbon tax. And if I just look at the, the direct cost that I'm allowed to see, which is on my fuel cost for my pickup, just personally that I use to go back and forth between the farm, my you know 800 and some square foot house that I live in here, and uh, just, just what I can directly see on my energy bills. So I got 150 bucks on my last payout here, and what I can cal- what I can calculate just in the three months uh, of what I get that 150 bucks for, I'm 173 dollars in expenses. So I get frustrated when when the government tells me, "Hey, you're getting back more than you pay in." And when I just look at that, when I take uh, all the costs that I can't see, which is what we we're just talking about on what we buy at the grocery store and any of the products that we try and buy, even the clothes that I'm wearing here that I try and get made in Canada, like I, I know looking at my numbers that I'm, I'm just not getting it back. You know, I think I think that is one again, you know, like I say, a good policy poorly communicated. And that's part of it is, you know, number one, I think they should have sent people actual physical checks, not not used, you know, online rebates or or tax deductions as it was for the first couple of years. I mean, there's so many people I run into on Twitter who they just don't know they got rebates because it was part of their tax return. And mm-hmm. either they didn't notice it because it was called something different or their their tax preparer didn't tell them. Uh, there's a lot of ways that can go wrong. And, and you know, there's definitely people who pay more. You know, I've I've run the numbers on our usage here. I get back more than I pay because I'm a guy who lives in the city and doesn't drive very much, right? I think that's part of the flaw in the rebate in some respects is that it creates winners and losers. And, and I think the people who are losing on the policy have a right to feel upset about it. Uh, you know, the thing I, I always, mm-hmm. that comes to mind for me is, you know, we, we hear a lot of complaints from, you know, oil and gas, agriculture in, in Alberta and Saskatchewan about the carbon tax. The provinces could implement their own climate plan. It doesn't have to be a carbon tax. It could be you know, mm-hmm. any number of things. And then they could use those revenues to really make farmers whole, right? They could use those revenues to make business whole. They, they have the right to do that as a, as, a, you know, as a provincial government. That might be a way for the provincial governments to kind of take the temperature down a little bit here, you know, especially in Saskatchewan, where obviously, you know, ag is such an important part, not just of the economy, but of, of the culture. And I do wonder sometimes why the premier hasn't done that there, you know, why he hasn't brought in his own climate plan that, that puts more money in your pockets, uh, rather than maybe someone in Regina or Saskatoon. It's uh, their their original uh, application. They actually submitted their climate plan and it was rejected by Ottawa. It was actually very close to the one that New Brunswick had submitted that was accepted, I believe. The Saskatchewan government, it's, I believe it's called output-based strategy, output-based yep. regulation, where they, they start working with large emitters and they will exempt them from the carbon tax. And over a period of time, those large emitters just have to show that they still, at the same point in time, they have to invest a lot of capital to make this happen. But they're just saying, hey, we trust that you're going to try and do better. We're going to watch what you're doing. And if you actually achieve it, we're just going to keep our hands out out of this, right? And I think that's a better way to do it for two reasons. Number one, because that puts the onus back on the company and it's going to make them be like, hey, okay, here's something that we're not going to be punished for and we can just go ahead and do this. We can make these investments and this is not going to be an artificial cost that we see on our on our output product uh, long-term to our customers. We're not going to see this increase and increase and increase over the next few years. We're going to say, hey, 
we did it. We achieved this goal that you set for us. And let's go forward with this product price point from here. And in my opinion, what that would do is if we could get that off of the consumer of what we pay on our, on our energies to be able to heat our houses and drive our cars with no viable alternative here in the prairies. From what I see, that should be the goal of reducing carbon emissions, right? Yeah, it, it's, I mean, it's tricky in, in the, you know, the sense that there is this sort of top-down approach. And, and I think, like you say, there, there are definitely local, local solutions in Saskatchewan are going to be different than they are in downtown Toronto. And it's an interesting conversation uh, you know, when, you, when you get down to this sort of a level and, and you're not on Twitter yelling at each other. I do want to <laughs> pick up on one thing. I do want to, uh, because sure. you know, I, I hear this argument a lot, and, I, and I've, you made it in, in a video back in June. You know that we that we we can sort okay. of solve all of our our climate issues by just exporting more LNG. If we if we exported all the LNG that that China and India and Russia and well not Russia that that Japan and and sort of Asian countries need to replace their coal fired electricity, like we wouldn't have to do anything here at home. But the, you know the problem and and this has sort of been documented over and over again is that they're not going to give us their reductions for free. You know, like you can't double count, you can't double count the reduction. <laughs> yeah. So the reduction happens in China. Yeah. China's not going to go, well, here you go. Here's a bunch of free GHG reductions for you to apply to your, your, your checkbook, your credits. credits yeah. So right? we, would, yeah. we could, get, we could yeah. export more LNG and, and pay for those credits. You know, and I think that's an interesting conversation to have, but I, you know, th- there's, there's no easy free lunch here. And I feel like that is, is less in the ag sector mm. because I really don't see any downside to producing more f- Canadian food. You know, I, mm. producing more Canadian oil and gas, uh, it, you know, the, 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 the global market is beginning to sort of top out. You know, that, that market is shifting fast and business does not want to invest in those sorts of new facilities. Number one, because it's really hard in Canada. You know, like, I don't, I don't, deni- I don't. It's, it's nearly impossible yeah, in Canada. I mean, look, I don't deny yeah. that, that it's harder here than it is in Texas. But I've always said, if, if Alberta mm. had the Pacific Ocean right to its left, uh, we would have way more LNG terminals than we do today. It's, you know, and, and if Texas had to go through California, they'd probably be in the same boat that we are. So that, you know, the, the LNG side of things, I, I guess I'm a little, little less uh, bought in than, than you are. Do you want to push back on that at all? And I, I don't make these statements uh, like not realizing that uh, even construction of an LNG facility, like uh, and w- with the standards that we have in Canada here is it, it, it takes time to build these things, right? I worked, uh, I worked in Northern Alberta and BC in some, uh, some rather large natural gas uh, shale frack areas there that were actually intention of that. And this is, we're talking over 12 years ago. And the intention of that was to make its way to the coast 12 years ago to be liquefied and, uh, and sent to market. And that's where I get frustrated is when you look forward now, I, I feel like we just haven't made the progress that we should have at this point in time. Going forward in the market, like obviously, I, like I would agree with you in saying that, uh, that this market is going to soften. But I don't think we're going to see it die out. And I, I only say that because uh, w- when you look at, I did another video where I just take, uh, take what we generate here for, for electricity in Saskatchewan and then convert it over to what we would actually need just to run a tractor to, to seed our crops here. If we tried to piggyback agriculture onto our electricity output here in Saskatchewan, we would need four times the amount of electricity that we currently create here mm-hmm. in Saskatchewan, right? I think I get branded as a guy that's against, you know, solar wind and all this stuff to a certain extent i am but i it gets me back to the to the root of i want to see stuff that's made in canada that we do here in canada i'd like to see every last bit of uh, of minerals and rare earth commodities that we need to make you know silicon wafers for solar panels let's do it here you know i feel like uh, the, the biggest problem that we have now is we are dependent on a lot of com- countries like china 
I don't know. Am I wrong in saying that if we could just localize things, we could probably do the world a lot better? And let me counter with a question of what would that do to global trade if we started doing things like that? I'm, you know, again, I'm in agreement with you. This is going to frustrate people who wanted this to be spicier. But, you know, it's funny. The, the eth- I find the ethical oil argument endlessly frustrating. But there's a kernel of truth in it, which is that we do things really well here, um, you know, from a, a, you know, a social governance uh, regulatory perspective. Now, None of that is because like the oil and gas industry wants to be regulated or, or wants to you know, pay a carbon tax, but, but we do have those things and we should be using those things to make, you know, make more food, make more technology here, make more, like you say, rare earth minerals. I, I'm all for that. But you know, I, when I look to, to China or India and, and the, the role that LNG can play there, I, I think both of those countries are learning very quickly that it would be much smarter for them to make their own energy you know, from, from wind, from solar. Uh, from things that that are lower cost uh, for them than to rely on an importer from another country. So I, you know, I think the business model for LNG is probably going to be strong for the next 15, 20 years. But look, by the time we get a new, you know, other than LNG Canada, we you know, get a new project in place, probably be 2030. And, and we're already sort of near the end of the rope there. So I think if we're going to focus on making more things, let's, let's focus on the rare earths, let's focus on food, let's focus on you know, electric cars that we're apparently going to be building in Ontario now. There's lots of opportunities for us. And, and you know, by the way, the oil and gas industry is not going to go away, you know, just purely in order to feed the, the global demand for asphalt. You know, heavy oil that we have in Alberta mm-hmm. it will have a unique sort of staying power uh, that other, you know, American oil and gas doesn't have. You know, we're, as long as we have electric vehicles, we're going to need more roads. And I don't think we've found a replacement for asphalt uh, and blacktop yet. So, you know, there's more opportunities in this this decarbonizing economy than I think it feels like for people at times. But I understand. Look, I understand the feeling of the government coming and wanting to put you out of business makes you, would make people angry. And I don't think that yeah. Ottawa has done a particularly good job of counterbalancing or counteracting that feeling. Now, part of that is just because mm-hmm. there's lots of pissed off, angry people here in Alberta, and not not enough, you know, non pissed <laughs> off people. But but part of it is that it's you know, if someone's coming for your livelihood, that's a, that's a fight to the death. And people are going to go to sort of different places to, to fight that fight. So uh, I, this is why I like conversations yeah. like the one we're having, because I think it shows people that you can kind of be on different sides of this issue. You know, I'm, I'm probably part of the extreme climate cult. I think you've called it that from time to time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think I have, yeah. <laughs> um, but, I, but, you know, I also understand that people have to put food on the table and have to make a living and government's coming and, and taking your livelihood away from you is not welcome in any part of this world. Yeah. But when you just look at the fact that all you do is, is sit here in, in Saskatchewan working 16 to 18 hours a day, and it feels like all that's happening is people are just piling and piling and piling on top of you. Eventually, I, I understand why there's frustration is because that's human nature is a person is just going to eventually you hit a breaking point and you're like, listen, I've had enough of this, you know, like if you feed a mule enough, eventually it's going to kick back, you know what I mean? And that's, and that's, I fear that that's probably the biggest problem that we have with our federal government in Western Canada right now is there needs to be more dialogue and less, you know, partisan and, and divisive politics and beating and chipping away at each other. You know, the thing that worries me is right now we have politicians and I think we have politicians on both sides. You know, I think Justin Trudeau in his own way is good at this. And certainly Pierre Poiliev is a is a expert rage farmer who are good at, at really nurturing and facilitating this sort of anger at, at other people who don't share our values. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, when I got into, I, yeah. you know, I got into politics when I was 19 years old. I don't remember that being a part of politics, that you were always angry at the other side. I actually remember being able to have a beer with the other side and get a, you know, disagree, but still, you know, see that you were kind of in the same game and, and that that's gone now. I have heard that from a lot of people that used to be in politics, where it was more of a when you went to went to the legislative building and you were headed into question period, it was more of a morning Ralph, morning Sam 100%. kind of thing, and you'd go and you'd go at it. But yeah, but then when you come out, it was you could go have a beer with each other, right? And yeah, that's uh, that seems to be slowly uh, slowly disappearing. Twitter specifically is hilarious because uh, there was one I uh, that our premier uh, Scott Moe had tweeted something that was absolutely ridiculous that looked like uh, a child was running his Twitter <laughs> account, and I quote yeah. tweeted it. And I was like, uh, and like people accuse me of being a partisan, you know, for and to a certain extent, sometimes and and sometimes I'm not. I'm not afraid to call out my own tribe because I think that's a very important thing to do. Uh, and I quote tweeted, and I was like, the the sad fact is that I had to check to see if this is a parody account, and it turns out it's the premier of my province, kind of thing. Within ten minutes, I had been called a far left liberal hack like twenty times, and I'm like, I'm sorry, what did you just call me? Yeah. <laughs> like, have you had anything like that? Oh yeah, happen? I mean, I, you know, this is. One of the uh, fun things about being, I think I'm a centrist, maybe I'm not, but being being in the middle-ish in Alberta is I've been called a, I get called a communist all the time. But I'm also called, <laughs> called a fascist and an oil and gas industry apologist by people on the left. So, you know, I feel, I always, I always yeah. sort of feel like <laughs> as long as I can keep those two in roughly, you know, I, I get called a commie more than I get called a fascist. But if I, as long as I'm getting called both, I feel like I'm probably in the right spot politically. <laughs> Uh, but, yeah. but it is, yeah, but it is sure. funny how, you know, people will turn on you if, if they feel like you've sort of betrayed your own side and, and, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. we don't go through life having a side or we shouldn't go through life having a side, you know, and you I know. think sort of gotten trapped into that. Now your video from July 25th about, about the fertilizer tax, you, you, you had this, this great line. You said, you people yeah. need to come down out of your ivory fucking towers and visit us on a farm. <laughs> and you would find out that reducing fertilizer use by increasing its effectiveness has already been happening on farms in Canada for years and years and years. Have I, have I come out mm. of my ivory fucking tower here? Do you think? <laughs> that is a good burn line there, Max. Yeah. But like a part of what I said there is, is, is a part of what I feel as a frustrated rural farmer in Saskatchewan, you know, and I think that's why I did so well is because I like I felt like uh, like I was speaking on behalf of everybody in my industry, that tiny part that's pissed off that can't, you know, outro anywhere. But hats off to you, man. You absolutely did come out of your every <laughs> tower. And, it's, uh, and I, I appreciate you doing it. I was so pumped when you when you messaged me wanted to do this because uh, we just we need to. Have yeah, more I'm glad happen. I appreciate you doing it with me. I'll, I'll give you the last word as as is my policy on this uh, on this podcast. But what can we do in this country? And, and specifically, what can people like me do who, you know, who go to the grocery store and the food is there and we sort of take it for granted? What can we do to better understand uh, the work that you do and the experience that you have producing that food? That's, that's a great question. And, and uh, gross, grocery store specific, the simplest thing any Canadian can do is when you go to a grocery store, the product that you're going to buy, turn the product around and look at the label. And you want to buy something from your grocery store that says product of Canada, because it's a product. If it's a product of Canada, 98% of the costs associated with that product have been occurred here in Canada. A, a prime example is canola oil. There's three or four selections for you to pick. And there's a really good chance that 33% of your selection comes from outside of Canada and is more cost efficient for you to buy. Don't look at the price. Try and look at where it came from, and uh, and try and support your Canadian economy because uh, that's uh, that's going to be 
more crucial, I think, than any of us understand going into the future. Yeah. Okay. Amen to that. I will buy my, I will make, I honestly thought all canola oil was, came from Canada. So now I'm going to turn those around and make sure that I buy the right one. Do it, man. Do it on everything. We do a, we do a lot of great things in Canada and we do them well. And uh, I, I can't thank you enough for having me on, Max. And this was great. And next time I'm in Calgary, I'm going to find you while I'm up here. All right. Looking forward to it. Just a reminder that we need your help to continue our podcast. Every donation helps. And please rate us a five on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. We want everyone to find us. Max Stout is produced by Canada's National Observer. Our managing producer for podcasts is Sandra Bartlett. Associate producer, Zara Kazema. The executive editor of Canada's National Observer is Karen Pugliese. Our publisher is Linda Solomon Wood. I'm Max Fawcett. Next week, it's Hot Politics with David Mackay, and I'll see you in two weeks.